Author uh, Stephen Castle wrote an article about Abraham Lincoln and the power of storytelling. He said that Lincoln could tell stories about anything, and he had a particular knack for finding just the right story to illustrate his point. He provided an example of a famous incident near the end of the Civil War when General William Sherman asked Lincoln what should be done with Confederate leaders, such as the Confederate President Jefferson Davis, who was on the run. The army needed to know whether to pursue and capture Davis. Lincoln did not want the army to pursue and capture Davis, but he couldn't publicly declare it. So Lincoln turned to Sherman and said, that reminds me of a story. And he proceeded to tell a story about a man who had taken a pledge against drinking. The man, said Lincoln, was offered a drink at a friend's house. The man declined on account of his pledge. So his friend offered him lemonade instead. The host mentioned that the lemonade would be a bit more palatable if he were to pour some brandy in it. The man said that if his host were to do that, unbeknownst to him, then he could not object. And General Sherman immediately understood the point of Lincoln's story. The army was to let Jefferson Davis escape, unbeknownst to the president. A good story can help make a point or drive home some bit of wisdom or truth. A good story can cause you to think and reflect. A good story can provide you with much-needed perspective and help you remember things that you might tend to forget. Sometimes the point or application of a story is easy to grasp, as with the example of Lincoln and General Sherman. But sometimes stories require more thought and reflection to truly grasp the meaning. The book of Esther is a wonderful story that the Lord has provided us for our good, but it is a story that doesn't necessarily provide us with a quick and easy application. The story requires us to dig deeper and take time to consider and reflect. We are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Esther, and this morning we are picking up in chapter 4. Last week, we were introduced to the antagonist of our story, Haman the Agagite. In chapter 3, we read how he became angry with Mordecai, who refused to pay him homage. Everyone was supposed to bow down to Haman, who was King Ahasuerus' number two guy. But Mordecai refused. It seemed like a small thing. One guy wouldn't bow down. National Geographic had an article about avalanches which explained how a little extra weight on a slab of snow can create a deadly downhill force of nature. Similarly, little old Mordecai's simple refusal to bow down to Haman triggered a cataclysmic event. It wasn't enough for Haman to punish Mordecai. It wasn't enough for him to put him in jail. It wasn't even enough to have this one man put to death, which in and of itself would have been extreme. No, that was not enough. Instead, he committed, he resolved and devised a plan to destroy not only Mordecai, but all of the Jewish people throughout the entire Persian Empire. His hatred of God's people rose to the surface as he went to the extreme in seeking to destroy all the Jews. He was able to manipulate Ahasuerus into issuing an edict to satisfy his plan and desires. In chapter 4, the plot thickens and the tension increases. In addition to recounting dramatic events, chapter 4 also points to and reminds us of several important things 
that I believe the Lord wants us to consider and reflect upon. I'm going to read chapter 4, and I encourage you to follow along. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he refused to, uh, he, ref he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Chapter 4 begins with an outward demonstration of a profound inward sorrow. Mordecai put his grief on display for everyone to see. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and cried loudly in public so everyone would know he was mourning. He was mourning the threat to him and all his fellow Jews. But he wasn't the only one mourning. All the Jews throughout the Persian Empire were mourning, weeping, lamenting, laying in sackcloth and ashes. What was taking place served as a visible reminder that God's people are not immune to hardships. God's people were not immune to hardship then, and God's people are not immune to hardship now. Being a Christian doesn't make us immune to bad news. Being a Christian doesn't mean we will not experience pain, sorrow, and disappointment. And some of you know this far too well. Some of you have experienced great 
a great amount of pain and sorrow and difficulty. Some of you have experienced it in your past. Some of you are experiencing it even now. The question then is, how do we respond to bad news? How do we respond to hardship? The Jews in the days of Esther and Mordecai began by mourning. Sometimes we need to mourn. We need to grieve. We need to lament. In Romans 12, 15, Christians are commanded, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. One of the assumptions in this verse is that Christians will weep. Christians will experience pain and sorrow and times of mourning. Mourning and weeping and lamenting is in part an expression that something has gone terribly wrong, that something is not right. Haman's plan to destroy all the Jews was not right. And we have many examples in our lives today of things that are not right. When governing authorities perpetuate injustice, it is not right. When someone suffers abuse, especially at the hands of someone who is supposed to protect them, it's not right. When a family experiences turmoil because of one family member's addiction to drugs, alcohol, or pornography, it is not right. When an African American is called the N-word, it is not right. When a child's parent dies when the child is a young age, it is not right. When you or a loved one is diagnosed with cancer, it is not right. When your adult child persists in unbelief and refuses to trust in the Lord, it is not right. When a baby girl or boy dies in the womb, it is not right. I could go on, but every one of these examples I have just listed have impacted one or more people in our congregation. We as a church family are familiar with pain. And when these things happen, we need to be able to grieve. Lamenting these things does not betray a lack of faith. But it does demonstrate that we live in a sin-wrecked world. We are living in between the Garden of Eden and the new heavens and the new earth. In the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve sinned, they experienced perfect fellowship and communion with the Lord. They experienced a world without sin. And we look forward to the time when the Lord will bring about the consummation of his kingdom and do away once and for all with sin and all of the consequences of sin. We read about this in the book of Revelation. We see a picture of our future, the future of those who trust in the Lord. For those who trust in the Lord, we have a glorious future. In Revelation 21, 1 through 5, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. 
and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We look forward to the day when the Lord will completely remove from us mourning, crying, pain, and sorrow. We get to look forward to that day in his kingdom where he will remove all of these things. But we are right now living in the time when mourning, crying, and pain have not yet passed away. We experience pain. People around us experience pain. We need to be able to mourn, and sometimes we need to love others by mourning along with them. Well, the Jewish people living during the reign of Hazarus knew how to mourn, and it seemed as though every Jew in Persia had heard the bad news except for Esther. Esther must have been isolated from the rest of the community because she had to ask why Mordecai was mourning. Mordecai wept at the king's gate, and when Esther sent one of the king's eunuchs to ask him the reason for his mourning, Mordecai sent a message explaining everything in detail. He not only explained the details of the problem, but he also told the eunuch to command Esther to go and plead with the king on behalf of her people. The crisis caused Mordecai to quickly change his tune. Up to this point, he had commanded Esther to keep her Jewish identity concealed. He most likely thought that revealing her identity could put her in some sort of danger. But Haman's plot meant the time for self-preservation had passed. She could no longer keep her identity concealed. She had to plead for her people. From Mordecai's perspective, the only hope for the Jewish people was a mediator who was able to go before the king on their behalf. Mordecai didn't have access to the king, and apparently none of the other Jewish people had access to the king. Esther, however, was uniquely positioned to intercede. And apart from someone interceding for them, the Jews were facing death. I do think we should see something familiar here when considering the situation of the Jews and Esther in chapter 4. When God created the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, he gave them a good command which he actually gave to Adam before Eve was created. In Genesis 2, 16 through 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God created us to enjoy this wonderful fellowship and communion with him. He created us to know him, to love him, to obey him, to glorify him. And yet what we see is that our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey God. They rebelled against his good command and thus rejected him as king. And what the Lord told them before their act of disobedience is that disobedience to him would result in their death. And while they did not immediately die physically, there was a spiritual death. And everyone after them is born into sin and is guilty of sinning. 
And the Bible speaks of our sin in terms of spiritual death. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, we read, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We are spiritually dead because of our sin. And because we are spiritually dead, we face the prospect of judgment when we die physically. In Hebrews 9:27, we read that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And we cannot save ourselves from our sin problem. We cannot overcome our sin by trying to live a good life. We cannot save ourselves from our sin no matter how hard we try. We need someone else to save us from our sin. Someone who is not guilty of sin. We need a mediator. And God in his loving kindness provided us with the mediator we need. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus was uniquely positioned to be our mediator. He was uniquely positioned to be our mediator in that he is fully God and fully man. He's uniquely positioned to be our mediator and that he was born of the Virgin Mary and thus did not inherit the sin nature as we do. He was uniquely positioned to be our mediator in that he lived a life without sin. And therefore, he was not guilty and he did not need someone to intercede or mediate on his behalf. Esther understood that when she was going to go before the king to intercede on behalf of her people, it could cost her life. For Jesus, serving as our mediator, did not come with the possibility of death, but with the certainty of death. The only way he could successfully intercede and mediate on our behalf was by giving his life as a ransom for us. In order to be our mediator, in order to intercede on our behalf, he had to make atonement for our sins. He had to take the punishment, the penalty that we deserve on our behalf. And Jesus willingly went to the cross, enduring the wrath of God in himself on behalf of God's people. This is the good news. This is the gospel. That though we are rebels, though we are sinners who deserve death, eternal separation from the God who made us, who created us for his good purposes, God in his kindness and his per mercy has provided a way for us to escape the wrath and the punishment we deserve by providing us with a mediator, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he is able to save sinners because he himself was without sin. And we know that all who repent of their sins and believe in Christ will be saved. Friend, if you're not a Christian, our hope and our desire for you is that you will believe in Christ and be saved. You see, we are all in need of a mediator. Every single one of us. 
Every single one of us is in need of a mediator because of our sin. You are in need of a mediator. So we hope and pray that you will trust in Christ for your salvation. Repent of your sin, believe in Christ, be saved, and be reconciled to God the Father. If you're not a Christian, we encourage you to believe in Christ and be saved. Well, when Mordecai sent word to Esther and told the eunuch to command her to go before the king and plead for her people, she began to process the implications of this request. She sent a message back to Mordecai and said, Look, everybody knows that if you go to the king without being summoned, the law says that you must be put to death unless by chance he holds out the golden scepter. She said, also, you should probably know that I have not been summoned for 30 days. She had not been summoned. She may not have under, not known where she stood with the king. Going before him, not knowing where she stood, was a tremendous risk. But when Mordecai re received the message from Esther, he was not dissuaded at all from exhorting her to act. He said, first of all, don't assume that you will be safe simply because you are in the king's palace. You are still a Jew, and you would be wrong to assume that you will have a better chance escaping than the rest of the Jews. Then he said something very interesting. He said, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's household will perish. This one sentence revealed a great deal about Mordecai's beliefs. This one sentence revealed a great deal about his worldview. He seemed to believe that Haman's plan would not ultimately succeed. He, believe, he seemed to believe that somehow someone would deliver the Jewish people so that they would not be destroyed. He also believed that Esther would face some kind of judgment if she didn't act. He clearly did not believe that the world operated in, random, in a random and meaningless way. No, he believed there was some plan and purpose behind the events taking place. Moreover, he believed there was a plan and a purpose for the Jewish people. And the next sentence he spoke was even more revealing. He said to Esther, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Not only did he believe there was some order and purpose in the world, and not only did he believe there was some plan and purpose for the Jewish people, but he also seemed to believe that the events of Esther's life had been ordered in such a way to put her in the position she was in to act at that particular time and at that particular place. Who knows, Esther? Maybe you have been put in this exact position for this exact moment. Yet in making these profound statements that reveal much about his beliefs and worldview, he never used the name of the Lord. In the book of Genesis, we read the story of Joseph. If you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, Joseph was betrayed by his older brothers who uh, sold him into slavery he was taken into Egypt. He was ripped from his family, ripped from everything and everyone he knew, sold into slavery. And while he was in slavery, he was falsely accused, leading to his imprisonment. 
But after spending time in prison, the Lord elevated him to the number two position in all of Egypt. And when a famine struck the land, his family, his brothers, came to Egypt seeking food. And they had no idea when they stood before Pharaoh's number two man that they were standing before their younger brother. They asked for food. This was the perfect opportunity for Joseph to exact his revenge. But he didn't. He showed them mercy. He showed them kindness. And when he revealed himself to his brothers, they were a little bit afraid that he might, in fact, exact revenge upon them. But here's what Joseph concluded in Genesis 45, verses 5 and 8. He said, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. What a perspective. His brothers betrayed him. His brothers sent him into slavery. But he's saying it wasn't really you who did this. It was God. God was working out his plan in order to save you, in order to preserve his people on the earth. He was so confident in God's providence. And he was explicit about who was behind the events that had taken place in his life. And if there was ever a time for one of the characters in our story to invoke the name of the Lord like Joseph, this was it. But Mordecai didn't do it. Ian DeGuid writes, God is the unexpressed presupposition of every one of Mordecai's thoughts. The unexpressed presupposition of every one of his thoughts. He had beliefs, but he lacked the clarity or perhaps the conviction to articulate the reason for his beliefs. It reminds me of how some people will say, everything happens for a reason without offering any explanation as to how or why everything happens for a reason. Brothers and sisters, where Mordecai was vague, the Bible is clear. We know that God is the creator of everyone and everything, and therefore there is purpose and meaning in the world. As the creator of everyone and everything, he rightly exercises his sovereign rule according to his will. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We also know that God has a cosmic plan of redemption that he is actively working to bring to fruition. We also know that his cosmic plan of redemption works itself out in the particulars of individual lives, including our lives. In Ephesians 1 3 through 14, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Oh, do you see this wonderful cosmic plan of redemption and how we are included in this wonderful plan, not because of our wills, but because of his will, his plan, his purpose. He is working out this cosmic plan of redemption whereby he will unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And we are included in that plan because he chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption, to receive redemption, so that we will belong to him. Oh, he is working out his good and glorious plan. And that means he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And in Romans 8, 28, we read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, sometimes it's difficult to see this. Sometimes it's difficult to believe this because we do live in that period of time where we experience sin and all the ramifications of sin. We do live in that period of time where there is pain, where there is sorrow, where there is mourning. So sometimes it's difficult for us to see this. Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand this. Sometimes it's difficult for us to believe this. But God has said that he is working all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Somehow, some way, he is working all things for the good of those who believe in Christ. Doesn't mean there's not times of mourning. Doesn't mean we can't lament. Doesn't mean we don't wrestle with God and ask him the hard questions. But when we get to the bottom of it, we can find that he is good, and that somehow, some way, he is working all things according to the counsel of his will for the good of his people. We need a more explicit theology than Mordecai. I don't mean graphic, but I do mean overt and specific. We need a more explicit theology than Mordecai. We need to be those who proclaim the sovereignty of the Lord the goodness of the Lord. We need to demonstrate confidence in his providence, that he is indeed working all things according to the counsel of his will, and that he is working all things for our good. Oh, we do not want to be vague. We want to be clear. So Mordecai expressed confidence that the Jews would be delivered one way or another, 
and issued a warning to Esther that she might face judgment if she remained silent. Esther had two options. She could remain quiet and accept the risks that would come with remaining quiet, or she could publicly identify with her people, the Jews, for the first time, risking her life in an effort to save their lives. She didn't take very long to deliberate. She decided to act even if it meant risking her life. She told Mordecai to tell all the Jews to fast on her behalf, and then she made this powerful statement. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She counted the cost. She understood what was at stake. She knew she was breaking the law, and she knew it could cost her life. She also seemed to understand that she was dependent on the Lord and that, she, that he cannot be manipulated. In Scripture, we often see fasting connecting with repentance over sin and an acknowledgement of dependence on the Lord. Esther, like Mordecai, seemed to be acknowledging the Lord without acknowledging the Lord. But even with everyone fasting, she did not assume she wouldn't die. The fact that she was fasting, her young women were fasting, and all the Jews in Susa were fasting did not guarantee the outcome she hoped for. She was willing to take the risk of going before the king for her people, and in so doing, she became a faithful steward of the position the Lord placed her in. She committed herself to taking a step of faith for the sake of others. She would not keep her identity concealed. She would not remain silent. She committed to act and to speak and said, if it costs me my life, so be it. Like Esther, we are called to be faithful stewards with the roles, responsibilities, and opportunities the Lord gives us. We will most likely never be in a position as significant as queen of the vast Persian empire, but that doesn't mean our roles are insignificant or unimportant in the eyes of the Lord. He gives us roles and responsibilities and opportunities. He gives us roles as sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters, as friends and neighbors, as moms and dads, as aunts and uncles, as grandparents, as bosses, as employees. He gives us all kinds of different roles and responsibilities and opportunities in our lives. He is the one who gives them to us. And he gives us these roles according to his will and his wisdom and his timing. He doesn't need us to be famous. He doesn't need us to be someone that others write about or talk about. He doesn't need us to be someone that people remember long after we're gone. But he does call us to be faithful with what he has given us in our particular time and in our particular place. How are you stewarding the roles and responsibilities and opportunities the Lord is giving you. Are you looking to steward these roles for the good of others and for his glory? What does that look like for you in your life? Are you willing to take risks for others? Are you willing to sacrifice for others? Are you working for the good of others and for God's glory? in the roles that he has placed you. Well, the book of Esther is a great story, and in chapter 4, the plot thickens. But the story goes beyond entertaining us to reminding us of important truth. We are reminded that in this life, there are times of mourning. We need to mourn, and we need to mourn with others. We are also reminded that just as the Jewish people needed a mediator, we too need a mediator. The good news is that we have a greater mediator than Esther. His name 
is Jesus. The story should also leave us feeling a little unsettled in the way the characters never mention the name of the Lord. And the way the story leaves us unsettled will hopefully serve to remind us that we are to be explicitly confident in God's providence while explicitly acknowledging our dependence upon him. And finally, Esther's resolve to use her position to take a risk for the sake of others will hopefully encourage us to be good stewards of what the Lord has given us. Brothers and sisters, may it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Your word is good. We thank you for the way that you use these stories in your word to teach us, to instruct us, to remind us, to comfort us, to build us up, to draw us to yourself. We pray that we will be a people who look to you and are confident in you and are confident that you are working all things according to the counsel of your will for the good of your people, even during times of pain and hardship and difficulty. Help us to remember these things. Help us to believe these things. Help us to look to Christ our mediator, who has taken care of our biggest problem, our greatest problem, our sin problem. And as we look to Christ, we pray that we will be faithful in all that you've given us, the roles you've given us, the responsibilities you've given us, the opportunities you've given us. Help us to understand what it means to be faithful stewards of these things, that we might serve others well for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.